You beauty. G'day guys and welcome to Dreams Into Success. I'm your host, Chris Goodrope, and each episode we bring you an inspiring story or message that will encourage you to face your fears and live your dreams. Before we get started today, I just want to say a big thank you to our sponsors here at Dreams Into Success, Robert Oatley Wines and Rode Microphones. And don't forget to visit my website, chrisgoodrope.com. Follow this podcast on Instagram at Dreams Into Success and subscribe to my YouTube channel at Dreams Into Success if you want to watch the episodes. Or if you prefer to listen, you can find me at Apple iTunes or Spotify so you don't miss an episode. This is episode number two with AFL legend and Sydney Swans premiership coach, Paul Ruse. Today, we are privileged to have not only an AFL legend in the house, but a very good friend and mentor of mine, the one, the only, Paul Ruse. Goody, how are you, mate? Uh, it's exciting. I love your setup too. Just what about the kit you've got going? Here? Bit of a kit going here. Very yeah. impressive, <laughs> mate. Thanks for um, thanks for for joining me today, and and really appreciate it. Just before we get started, um, you probably don't. I know you love your stats, so let me just roll your eyes over a few stats. Three hundred and fifty six VFL AFL games. Seven time All Australian, ninety one and ninety two as captain. Five time Best and Fairest winner. Six time club captain. Fitzroy Team of the Century, AFL Hall of Fame inductee, Brisbane Lions Hall of Fame inductee, and Sydney Swans Premiership coach in 2005. Um, mate, what a record. What a playing and coaching career. Yeah, look, I've, I've been really fortunate to, to play for a long period of time. And I guess a lot of that, you know, you need a little bit of luck with injuries. You know, no one gets to the 300-plus games and misses a lot of footy. So, yeah, I, I was pretty resilient and able to play um, and not get too many injuries, so that was part of it. And yeah, got some, had some great mentors when I first started Fitzroy, which helped me through the journey. And then was able to coach a, a great bunch of guys at Sydney and won the premiership. So it's been a, a great journey. Have you had much time to reflect on it since leaving the game? Or it's probably only when people read it out, or you know, you look at the record and then um, you know you assess it and sort of see, yeah, it's, I've done a pretty good job, sort of thing. So. More, more probably coaching, not not as much playing because yeah. Um, yeah, playing. Yeah, some people probably don't, don't even know me as a player to be honest. Most people would think of me as a coach, coaching Sydney, then coaching Melbourne, and and the stuff I do now on leadership is more around you know, yeah. um, what I did around coaching. Certainly, I learned a lot as a player, which then translated into coaching, but not not as much about playing. Although you know, now that I'm back down in Melbourne, have been for six years, I've. You know, now catch up more with Laurie Serafini, Mickey Conlon, Gary Wilson. I run into a lot. All the old guys. You yeah. know, Purdy. So, yeah, a lot of the older guys. And so it's sort of more reflective now. Matty Rendell organises functions, which is great. Yeah. So there is a bit more of a connection that you're back into Melbourne to the old um, Fitzroy days and reminiscing, So which is, which is good fun. Yeah, great, great. Mate, just I want to talk to just a little bit about coaching. I'll just read out a couple of names. Bill Belichick, New England Patriots. Phil Jackson, Chicago Bulls, LA Lakers. Um, Stephen Hansen, the New Zealand All Blacks famous coach, um, yourself. What 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 do you what do you see all these coaches have in common? Like what traits must yourself and these type of guys have to have that type of success that they've had? Yeah, well, I think anyone that hasn't seen the Last Dance gets a really good look at the Chicago Bulls. So, 
Uh, so you can probably speak more to that. And I've read a lot about uh, Phil Jackson. Um, Belichick obviously has had enormous success. The All Blacks have been amazing. There's a great book um, called Legacy, I think it's called. Um, and we met with some of the All Blacks guys in the mid-2000s, so I got a bit of an understanding of, of what their problems were at the time and what they were trying to navigate. Yep. I think the common themes are having a really clear understanding of what drives your high-performance team. It was interesting. I had a really good discussion with Dave Misson, who was my fitness guy at um, both Sydney and Melbourne, and he worked with Rossi Lyon um, at St Kilda, and he also worked with cricket before he came to us. And you, the question you just asked me, we, we asked him, and he probably had a, a better view of it because he looked at it from a – I mean, I look at it from a coaching position. Yeah. And he, his comment was really simple. A clear set of guidelines, clear set of the way you want to act, build really good relationships and strong relationships, feedback's coming from a place of just wanting to get better you know, all the time, and review, 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 just constantly reviewing and constantly getting better. And, and that was interesting coming from him. And I think that's the, the main thing that I would say. And he also talked about being selfless. And he, and he gave a great analogy of Barry Hall when Hawley was about to win the goal kicking, uh, I think it was in 05, needed two, two goals. And this Misso was telling the story. And I, I do remember the game, obviously, and he kicked two goals in the first quarter and then we won by 80 points and Hawley was handballing it to someone, kicking it to someone and refused to kick you yeah. know, the, the you know, goal to win the Coleman. And he was asked after, he said, this is a, this is a team game. And, um, and if you look at Jordan and the Bulls, the moment it changed for the Bulls is when Phil Jackson went to Jordan and said, your role is to make everyone else better. Yeah. You're already the best player in the competition. So I think they're the main tips. And if you look at Belichick's success around Brady, yeah, they've had some misfits go in there and done some really good things. Absolutely. You know? So clearly yeah. there's a culture. This is the way we play. This is the way you know, we behave. And it's black and white and there's no grey areas. I think they're the common themes. Yeah, okay. Now I suppose leading on from that, um, for people managers or coaches alike out there, how do you go about connecting and building those relationships with 45-plus players on a list? Yeah, look, I did a lot of stuff when I was playing. And, and how difficult of, is it, I suppose? Yeah, well, we had a lot of people coming with butcher paper and sessions and whether they're psychologists or team building, et cetera, et cetera. And I always got a bit bored with it all and I thought it, it works for, you know, a certain period of time. And then when Ray McLean turned up um, at Sydney, it just became really, really simple. Um, so myself, Jared Murphy, Emile Studham and Warren Everett created an organisation performance by design and it, it has to be simple. It's, it's got to be a simple system yep. where you all agree on a set of behaviours and then you act accordingly and then you reward or your challenge, and then once you get your system in place and the sooner you do it, everything revolves around it. You build really strong relationships and great, you know, the change in Damien Hardwick, if you believe what you read, is he's gone away from being a stats. You know, I talk about being in your head or in your heart. He's gone away from his head into his heart. Yeah. So then you start building relationships. And if people think, I always believe if people think they care about you, you're more likely to accept their um, feedback, either positive or negative, because you know it's not coming through place of power. The old system was a place of power. I'll give you feedback because I'm your boss. And then you're sitting there going, well, you're giving it just because you're my boss or you're giving it because you actually care. You, you care. Yeah. Now good leaders go from their head to their heart. They build a really clear set of guidelines and we create a clear set of behaviours. Then they'll, they'll also have a clear set of technical KPIs, which we never delve into because it's their business. Um, what are the real key things we, we need to do? And then if you marry the two of them, and you have your leaders being role models and role modeling them, 
then you can't go wrong. And no. it's a really simple system. Yeah. And I suppose that makes it easier because my next question was, you know, what strategy and approach did you use to have those challenging conversations with players? You know, you might be, you know, sending a senior player back to the twos that week or how did you go about having like those challenging conversations? As I suppose it's, you know, what you just said, building on those relationships, have some simple rules in place that they understand that you actually do care for the player. And I think players or executive teams or, or um, you know, employees, they deserve feedback. They deserve to know. But, if you, but, you, but it's hard to give feedback if you don't know what you're giving feedback on. Yeah. So unless you, unless you create a system where every player knows exactly what's expected of them, and then if you do that, you know, it's funny being in the corporate world now for three years and a bit, you know, they, they really find uncomfortable. I talk about hard conversations and I, I just say, well, they're not, they're not hard conversations in footy clubs. They're just conversations. Yeah. But if you, you have to build the framework first, you know, what is expected, what are you rewarding and what are you challenging? And once you get that right, the hardest conversations I ever had were for the players that were just fantastic in their behaviour. So they did everything right. But they just weren't quite technically there. That was I found that really difficult. Yeah. You know, because you knew they were giving everything they possibly could. You knew in terms of what we'd set up at Melbourne and what we set up at, at Sydney, they, they were acting, you know, hundred percent in the way we wanted to act. Yeah. They just weren't quite technically good. That was the hardest conversations to have. The yeah. other ones weren't that difficult, to be no. honest. Yeah. And I talk about acting your way into the system or acting your way out of the system. Mm. Nah, it's very good. And, I, and leading on from that. The, the, probably the most important ex- aspect for you, giving yourself the best chance for team success. I mean, I suppose it's leading on from what you've just said, but what's your view on the most important ex- um, aspect of team success? I think the most important aspect of team success is understanding the notion of team. And it sounds, it sounds silly, but that's probably the hardest thing to get is to get everyone within your team, you know, what we talk about under pressure, do you do what's best for yourself or do you do what's best for your team? And if you look at it worldwide now with what's going on, I mean, there's so many examples yeah. of self-interest. There's a great saying always back self-interest, you yeah. know, and you were seeing it over and over again. But the, the leaders that are standing out are the ones under pressure. Do you do what's best for yourself or do you do what's best for your team? Wow, that's and, powerful. And the story Miss I was telling about Hawley, in that moment under pressure, yeah, we were winning but there's still pressure playing. Barry Hall did what was best for the team in that moment. Yeah. You know, Michael Jordan started doing the, what's best for the team. Prior to that, he was just doing what's best for himself and it, and it wasn't working. It wasn't working. So no. the ability to tell you, your team, regardless of what it is, that whatever we're going to do is going to be in the best interest of the team. And that's probably the hardest thing to get. And when you get it, it's so special. Yeah. It's so special. Oh, absolutely. I think you mentioned it before, your um, performance by design, the great work you're doing there. The term leadership, what, what does a good leader look like to you and, and what qualities must they have? It's funny. I, I, like to, I talk about leaders as role models. It should, be, it should be, if you're the CEO, you should be the head role model. That should be your title, fundamentally. Yeah. You, know, you have to be a role model. If you're going to ask people to do something, you have to do it yourself before you can. And also, you, 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 you can't, you've got to be – in your heart. You've got to be able to now to be vulnerable. You've got to be able to build relationships. You've got to have great self-awareness in what you can and can't do. You've got to have the ability to say, I don't know, and I'm going to ask someone. You're going to ask great questions. Um, and, and to be honest, there's not that many great leaders. And the reason I say that is, and it's the same in footy, really, 
they're technically very good at what they do. That's why you get you get um, um, promoted in business, and that's why most of the coaches get promoted because they're technically very good, but they've never really led anyone. So no. suddenly you're looking down after ten years at an organisation, and you've been technically very good at being an accountant, or very good at being a salesperson, or very good at being a lawyer. Next thing you know, you're looking down, you're going, I'm now managing a hundred people. I actually don't have the skill to do it because no. I've never done it. It's a different never, skill set. It's really. a completely different skill set. Yeah. So to that point, you need to develop those skills. You need to develop, you know, the empathy. You need to develop self-awareness. You need to develop vulnerability. You need to develop the ability to ask questions, ask good questions. Yeah. You know, read books, do courses. Um, and if you can get that right, you know, everything else falls into place. But it is difficult. I, I keep saying to I think that this notion of leadership, and I've got no doubt, and Rossi Lyon and I talk about this all the time, I've got no doubt that a lot of assistant coaches look at senior coaches like Ross and I as a bit of, you know, this is an easy job and, yeah. oh, look, I could do this and I could do this better, I can do this better. And, you know, and then once they get to the role, they just have a completely different appreciation. Oh, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming yeah. and they don't understand how difficult it is. Yeah. And I think that's the same in business as well, you know, and I think you've got to critique your, you know, your boss. You've got to critique your – and I always encourage young coaches to write down the things you're, you're learning at the moment. Write down the things that – you know. I'm sure Benny Matthews has wrote, written down a lot of things that I've done wrong that he's going to correct. So I'm not suggesting either Ross and I are, are the perfect coaches, but write them down, mm. give a bit of a roadmap, learn the things that you, you know you're going to learn – um, and understand it's difficult. Yeah. It's not an easy job to be a leader. And I think there's this misconception yeah. out there that, that you know, oh, look, I'll get a shitload of money as the CEO or whatever. I'll manage some people. How hard can that be? We've got a good product. We've got a good team. And away we go. It's just, it's, it's not that simple. Yeah, absolutely. And leading on from that, Rosie, you, you often talk about it all the time about developing your own brand. Um, getting the right support around you, that whether that's a group of coaches, whether that's in a workforce, getting a good team around you to to, to lead. Um, how important is is that aspect of it? And can you just explain a bit more about like identifying your brand, own personal brand, and and even from from a footy perspective, like a team brand as well? Yeah, exactly. I think it's important. You know, at the moment, I would really encourage leaders, given we're spending a lot of time with ourselves, to develop a personal brand. You know. Um, how do you want people to, you know, it's almost like if someone was writing your tombstone, your tombstone now, what do you want people to remember you as? Mm. Yeah, and that holds you accountable to do that. The best thing I did was write down those 25 points when I finished playing, the things I liked about my leaders, things I didn't like about my leaders. So that was the document for me to really hold me accountable. And then you, you've got to be really clear. And I think football is a much more difficult environment because you might have a set strategy as we did at Sydney but you're going to go through some tough times and you're going to be criticised because yeah. the media fundamentally you know, don't really understand the game as intimately as what the clubs do. So mm. that's just natural because they're not spending as much time. There's a lot of misinformation. So you know, whether it was me in, in 2005, Bomber Thompson after me, Clarko when he was going through some tough times, Rossi Lyon, Damien Hardwick, Nathan Buckley, every one of the successful coaches is going to be criticised. Yeah. But your ability to, to trust yourself and trust in your game plan, you know, is really, really important. Um, yeah. And it is really difficult for, for coaches. It's probably, when I say it's a little bit easier in the corporate world, you've probably got more time because you're not under the spotlight. You yeah. can make a few more mistakes. And that's why I yeah. talk about self-awareness. If you've got greater self-awareness, you can say, 
is we probably got that product wrong or yeah. we just need to change that slightly or our pricing's a little bit out. You just don't have that margin for error in a footy club, no. you know. And then you've got to weather you either got to weather the storm or you've got to go away from what you believe in. Yeah. You know, and most coaches just go away from what they believe in because they bend to the pressure. To the media and the pressure. Yeah. That must be really hard in knowing that, like, you know, there might be the media, particularly here in Melbourne, like they've got the media outlets, you've got the footy shows yeah. happening, you know, all this pressure. You might have lost, you know, two, three in a, in a row. That must be tough sticking to your, what you know will work in your own brand and your own identity to push through that. Oh, I mean, the most recent one is Ross Lyon, and he's a great mate of mine. And you, you, you very rarely see a player that's interviewed that doesn't rave about Ross as a coach. Mm. But the media wanted to create this rift between the Frio players and, and Ross. Yeah. But every time they asked the player, and even now I read an article about Stephen Baker and Stephen Milne, and Milne, I think, said he got sacked by Ross, but he couldn't speak highly enough about the way he went about his job. Yeah. So, the, so there's a great example of the media trying to tell a narrative but the narrative is actually not true. Yeah. When you actually speak to the people within the footy club, the, the St Kilda players love him. Dave Misson, as I said before, was with Rossi. He, he couldn't speak highly enough. Great example. The narrative the media were trying to tell, but they're so powerful. Mm. So what ends up happening? The board breaks. Yeah. The board just says, you know, we're weak. Um, we have to bow to pressure. And the simplest thing to do is to get rid of the coach, you know, and to keep the, the players. Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a great example. So if you're in a coach in that situation, it, and it, particularly if you're a young coach, it's hard enough for a Ross Lyon or a, a Clarkson or a Longmire. But if you're a young coach like Brendan Bolton, you know, it's it's really difficult yeah. position to be in. You know, Bolt's last year and, you know, now whether he's a good coach or bad coach, you know, I, I'm not inside the club, but, but clearly his mandate was to play young players, get young players. You know, I remember going and doing a game um, – early last year and it was against Gold Coast and he had three young midfielders in and I, and I remember thinking he had, um, he had Ed Kerno and, and Mark Murphy on a half-forward flank and I remember commentating and said, look, all he really needs to do is put Murphy and Kerno in the midfield and he probably is going to win this game. Yeah. But I think in his mind he stuck to his guns and said, no, I'm going to develop Trying young to develop talent. Players, yeah. You know, when David T come in, the first thing he did was put Kerno and Murphy <laughs> in the midfield and clearly yeah. it's going to change. Mm. Yeah, because you've got two better players playing in the midfield. Yeah. So Brendan stuck to his guns and got sacked. You yeah. know, um, yeah. David changed, you know, the philosophy, um, put the older players back in the midfield and, you know, got a, a three-year yeah. term. So it is really difficult in an extremely tough environment to, to stick to your stick to your principles. And that's a really good point, actually, because, like, I've got down here, you were one of the pioneers in many aspects of the game, but one of the – things that you did really well, I, th- I think, was you actually traded some of your draft picks. You know, you got in the, the Teddy Richards, the Darren Jollies, the Reese Shaws, the Marty Matners. I think Barry Hall arrived when you started coaching as well. Um, and you just spoke about it then with the younger players. Do you think the draft age should be 2021, 20, like a little bit older, have a bit more of those mature bodies around? It's funny, I'll tell you the story. I think I've told it publicly before, but, but we were going into the draft and I think we had pick 15 and we wanted a Ruckman. So Tammy and I, Tammy had a great Sunday night. So Tammy and I went through the previous uh, 16 drafts and we took out the most recent two and the early two, I think it was. So it was 13 drafts in the middle and we wrote down every first round draft pick and then I rated them. Right. And there was one player in the 13 drafts at pick 15 I would have taken ahead of Darren Jolly, one player. And as soon as I looked at that, I thought, wow. this, is, this draft is just the complete 
Furphy. If yeah. you're trying to build a premiership team, you know, it's it's not the panacea. No. You know, so then we then and Rick Rick Barham and I have a great relationship and Rick was, you know, reluctant to give away <laughs> pick fifteen and for Darren Jolly, but we did. And then we had based on those discussions, you know, we had that philosophy. Yeah. You know, we gave away pick nineteen for Ted Richards, pick twenty eight for Marty Matnar, pick fifty something for Reece Shaw. And it just became like gold for the Sydney Swans Footy Club because we were the first team to realise that there's actually better value. And then Money, I think Moneyball came out around about the same time. It did. Great movie. Yeah, Moneyball, great movie. Yeah. And then Richard Collis gave all the, a book to all the um, coaches and all the, um, the uh, directors as well. And it tied in with that philosophy. We didn't have as much technical uh, data. I just did it myself. And then we did a lot of then we did a lot of stuff around the draft and and what made good draft players. So we were we definitely ahead of the curve in that. Yeah. Teams have caught up. But to your point, I always talk about this. What have you learned from the past? I started in under eight, under 19s. So the under 19s, you had an under 19 team at 12 clubs. You had probably 60 players come down. So you multiply that by 12 and you got, what do you got? 720 players. So 720 players in Victoria getting access to an AFL club. Now, Australia-wide, you have about 80. Yeah. Australia-wide, 80. Tell me what's a better system. It has to be a better system the way it was. No-brainer. The, yeah. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. And then you, the, the draft age is ridiculous. You're asking kids to go to school, do the year 12, play for the Sandy Dragons, play for, play for Vic, Vic Metro as well, balance everything in their life and get drafted. Yeah. It's just farcical. It's too much. And on top of that, if you look at the quality of guys that come in later on, you're not talking about average players. You're talking about a Brownlow medalist in Matty Prittis. You're talking about an All-Australian in Dane Rampey and Tom Stewart. You know, you, you're talking about the Tim, Kelly, the, Tim Kelly. You're talking about some of the best players in the competition at the moment. So there's just too much data. Yeah. And, and then the, the, the anti-people will go, yeah, well, what about that kid that's ready to play? He'll play another two years anyway. Yeah, he's Who still going to make it. He's still he? going to make yeah. it and he's yeah. still going to play and he's going to be better. He's going to be better for it at the back end yeah. of his career. So it's, it's an absolute no-brainer. But, and, and maybe one of the positives out of this is the draft age goes up, mm. you know, yeah. and you're creating systems underneath. I talk about it all the time. The AFL professional system is the only system worldwide that has a development arm within their A-grade team. Could you yeah. imagine Bill Belichick, you know, working with an a 18-year-old quarterback and, and trying to develop him over a four-year well, period? It's just oh, well, They want him ready-made, don't They're they? They're ready-made. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so we are the only system that does that. So you could shift that development back down. You could recreate what it was like, you know, prior, prior to the draft and you could lift the draft age to 19 or 20. Yeah, yeah, no, good point. Uh, Rosie, you achieved the ultimate success as a, a premiership coach. 72-year drought was broken. Um, can you take us back to that day and describe the feeling? And then leading on from that, I'm going to ask you what you, what you said pre-game. But, yeah, first of all, how, 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 how did you describe the feeling? How was the day? Yeah, it was, it was quite amazing. Um, I think, and I talked talk this, I love Mark Williams, Choco, and, but I remember the year before 2004, and it was, was fantastic for me when he grabbed his tie and choked choked himself. And I remember that, the, yeah. He got up on the podium and said um, about the major sponsor. And I, I just thought in that moment, I, I just really hoped that Choco was enjoying himself and not doing it out of spite. Mm. But what it, what it said to me is, just be really present, be careful, 
don't not enjoy the day if you win and be really humble if you lose. So it was a really good precursor. Now, clearly when Choco was doing, I had no idea we'd win the premiership or get to the grand final in 2005. But yeah. I remember that moment. I just thought, geez, I hope he's got out of it what he wanted to get out of it. So because of that, I went into the game and the day thinking we, we want to be really calm. We want to be really present after the game if we win it. Um, and then obviously there was no time to relax at all. You know, it went down to Leo's last oh, mark yeah. and then I actually didn't see the mark. I was looking down the other end of the ground because I knew there wasn't much time to go. And then Peter Jonas, I think, yelled out Leo's marked it and then someone else yelled out the siren's gone. <laughs> but my point is because of what Choco did, it, we, we stayed in the box, we were really calm, we congratulated each other. So every moment I remember, yeah. you know, walking down, the crowd going nuts, walking on the field, seeing Tammy and the boys – and then walking around for the players and then seeing all the people in the you know mid-80s, late-80s, 90s that put money into the footy club. It meant so much to a lot of oh, people. Oh, it was just incredible. And then seeing Richard Collis and Andrew Ireland and past players and Dennis Carroll, Barry Round, and then getting the cup from Paul Kelly. So every moment I, I remember because I purposely went into it to be really present and really calm, not knowing whether we are going to win. Um and then, you know, having your kids celebrate it with you and just – Well, I was going to – that was going to be one of my next questions. I go, how the hell did Tyler and Dylan get in that team photo? Well, it changed <laughs> – it probably changed the model because the AFL were fuming because all the photos Tyler and Dylan were in, they had to <laughs> crop them out of the photo. So they made – I think they made a directory that, you know, kids can't go on the podium. And I know, I, the, I know the boys well. They yeah. were definitely – Well, I didn't what know. They, they were sort of just <laughs> lapping it up and then one was at one end, one was the other end, and then one was at the photo <laughs> and on the podium and they were having a blast. So it was, it was awesome. Um, yeah, and then post – you know, post-match, you sort of rehearse your speech more around making sure you're humble if you lose rather than winning. And I'd never mm. – I'd rehearsed a little bit of it, but the, here it is. I, everyone asked me about that. I, I, that just came to me based on the banner. I remember seeing the banner and, you know, how much it meant to two cities, you know, Sydney and all the pioneers of, of Sydney and, and the heartache because I remember the heartache in 81, I think it was, you know, when they're trying to save South They Melbourne. were tough years, weren't they? Up, yeah, up the city, and then yeah. they went up there and I remember all the stories. And we made a point of sharing that with the players and, you know, yeah. getting – so they understood the history of the footy club. So in that moment it just came to me that, that so many people put in so much effort and so much time and were yeah. just desperately wanting to see their team win a premiership and, and that's where they sort of here it is came from on the spur of the moment. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose I, the reason why I wanted to – I don't know, I'm not sure if you remember what you said pre-game – but I'll take you back. Obviously, you and I were, were at the academy together, the Swans Academy. I'll never forget, I was, um, I was a bit of a – I was Smithy's right-hand man, yeah, but yeah, I was yeah. pretty much doing everything from talent to, to uh, operations. To this day, I think I was doing media. And we're in the, um, the Swans change rooms because we're playing the Giants on the SCG. And you just wanted players in there. So obviously, I was in there as well and doing the media. And, mate, I could have ran through a brick wall. Like, your speech was just oh, unbelievable. I had, like, hairs on the back of my neck. I was ready. I wanted to get out there and start playing. Like, do you, do you remember what you said, you know, 2005? Probably a long time ago. The players, yeah, the players re really remember. That it was, it was the Friday night before the game, and we typically have our team meetings then on the away games. And I remember thinking, what am I going to say to these players? You know, this is a huge game tomorrow. And it just sort of dawned on me that we're here, we're good enough. And I really wanted to give the players some confidence that we could definitely win. You know, and it's funny, I, I think, and I, I've never spoken to Clark about this, I've never spoken to John Longmire about this, but you sort of feel like you've got to 
you got to do something special. And then it hit me, no, no, these guys, all they need is confidence. Yeah, all they belief. need is belief yeah. that they can beat the Eagles. Yeah. So I, at the end of what I spoke about, I said, guys, we are here. We are good enough. I guarantee we'll win tomorrow. I guarantee it. If we play like we want to play, I guarantee we'll win. Yeah. And I, and I follow up by saying it's going to take everything we've got and we're going to have to play till the absolute final sign and we're playing against a great footy team. But I will guarantee you now, right now, if we do the things that we've done all year, we'll win, we'll win tomorrow. Yeah. And, they, and the players probably talk about it more than I do. Um, and then I think that just sort of set up the day. That, that It just reinforced it, you know, pre-game, quarter time, half time, what are the things that make us great? Yeah. What are the things we have to do? Yeah. Because there's a danger in the grand final that players start doing things because they think they have to do more. Yeah. One of the biggest loads of garbage I ever hear from the media is the, the leaders didn't lift in big moments. It's so <laughs> ridiculous, the, the concept. So what we're effectively saying to leaders is you don't have to lift in, in small moments. No. So just wait for that big moment to lift. What leaders do is they just do the same thing over and over and over repetitive. again. They're yeah. just repetitive. Yeah. If you get your leaders thinking they have to lift in a big moment, then they're doing something outside the team rules. Yeah. But it looks like they lift in the big moment because yeah. they're just your best players. Yeah. And then they're in the right stop, spot at the stoppage and then they get the clearance or they make the tackle a la Trent Cotchin multiple times in the last three or four years. Yeah. It's not lifting in the big moments. It's just doing what's expected of you over exactly. and over and over and over again. Yeah. So grand final day was just reinforcing that to all our players. Guys, just play your role. Do what you're asked to do. Trust your mate next to you that he's going to play his role and just keep doing it for until the final siren goes. Yeah. Oh, no. Great, great points, Rizzi, and great insight as well. Um, we, you mentioned it earlier, the last dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, um, you know, how competitive he was, how demanding he was from his teammates. I know, you know, I'll often send you a text on Monday night when we're watching it, yeah. but can you just delve into the Bloods culture and, and how you – developed a winning attitude. I know you t- just gave us a good insight in terms of, you know, the real belief in the players, but how did you talk about that Bloods culture? You know, Brett Kirk and those type of guys come to mind, um, you know, the Craig Boltons, um, and how you developed that winning attitude in them? Yeah, well, look, our Michael Jordan, and I'll explain a bit more, was Stewie Maxfield. Now, clearly Michael Jordan was the most talented player in the world and still, in my opinion, by far the best basketball player ever. But if, but if you're looking at it and you're watching this incredibly talented player transform into a team player, you know, but his drive and his passion to be winning was what helped Phil Jackson. You know, you need that player in your locker room. You need that player that just doesn't take anything and, and, and is single-minded about winning. So our, our Michael Jordan was Stewie Maxfield. Yeah, now I clearly didn't have the talent of Michael Jordan and none of us do and really probably wasn't in the top five to eight best players at Sydney. But when we created our system and we, we voted for our captain, we voted on a set of behaviours and then we, we made Stewie captain. What Stewie did in the back end of 2002 was invaluable. He was injured and he sat in the coach's box for 10 weeks when I took over from That was Rocket. your first. Yeah, yeah that's right. So I yep. took over from Rodney Ede. Uh, Stewie was injured. I said, Stewie, can you help with the defence? He said, fantastic. So 10 weeks of looking through the eyes of a coach and he became the on So field. he sat next to you. Was yeah, pretty he much was in the coach's right box, yeah, yeah with, with John Longmore, I think Steve Malaxos. So that learning experience for him was invaluable. Yep. He then became the captain and it was all about the team yep. and it was all about high performance. Without him being captain in that period, um, it would have been really hard to get to where we got to so quickly. 
And then through his passion and drive and just saying, well, this is how we're going to act. These are our behaviours. I'm going to drive these players relentlessly. It just, it just it made it so much easier for the coaching group. Yeah. And then it taught you know, Leo and it taught um, Brett Kirk and it taught Adam Goods and it taught you know, all, the, all the lineage of great captains, you know, all the way down to even Joey Kennedy wasn't there. Yeah. But even down to Joey Kennedy and Dane Rampey today, that started with Stewie Maxfield. Yeah. And how he drove the group. So, yeah. yeah, you need someone. Every coach needs someone within the player group, and more the more the better. And it, and at Sydney, we talked about weight of numbers. You know, once Stewie took over, we had yeah, Benny Matthews was incredible. Jared Craig, oh, you had them all incredible. lined up, ready to go. Yeah, you know, our role players. And I say that respectfully, and it's a, it's a bad term, but Luke Ablett, Eamon Buchanan, you know, Paul Bevan, yeah. Shawnee Dempster, who went on to play some great footy with St Kilda as yeah. well. You know, all our players eventually just just weight of numbers. We just had so many players acting their way into the system. Did you have a favourite player? <laughs> I, I don't have a favourite player, but I always talk about Leo Barry because it's not until you actually go into Wikipedia and you you look up Leo Barry and you realise I think they've got him down at one eighty four centimetres. And we we took it for granted how he would play on guys that were six foot four and a hundred kilos, and Leo was. 184 centimetres and probably weighed 85 kilos. And when I look back on what he was capable of doing, I don't think he's got anywhere near the credit yeah, wow. you know, from an individual yeah. point of view. He played on uh, Fraser Gehrig one day. I think Fraser, we, they were undefeated. I think they were 9-0 when we played him at the um, SCG. And Fraser was just killing him. And Fraser was a seriously good athlete. Fraser did not get one kick that day. Not one kick. Leo held him. And I, so when I look back on it, I just think his capacity. But, you know, if you go through that here, and I'm more talking about the role that he played and what we asked him to do, yeah. we just didn't think he was physical. Because that was a big thing at Sydney, wasn't it? It was like, play your role. Play your role. Keep it simple. Play and your I think role. the other thing, what we did with all our players was gave them a role we thought they were physically capable of doing. Leo had no right to be able to do what he did. Yeah. But he had an amazing capacity to do it. Yeah. But the other guys, you know, the, the, the unsung heroes I just mentioned for you, Benny Matthews, you know, Jared Crouch, always asked to play a selfless role, yeah. just incredible. Kirky playing on the best, you know, opposition player every single week and pretty much taking him out of the taking him out of the game. Yeah. You know, Mickey O. I mean, Mickey O was injured for six years with knee tendonitis. Mate, he's he'll be happy that you've mentioned yeah. him. <laughs> he I mean he was a half forward flanker. Yeah. That was asked to play full forward because yeah. he couldn't train. Well, he, well, he often says that. He said he never trained. No, he never <laughs> trained. So he's so talented, Mick. You know, yeah. So you go through, and we're not doing justice to all the other guys, but just to give a bit of an insight yeah. into some of the things that were happening at the time, you know, it was just we had some selfless players, yeah. guys that just sacrificed for the team, and, and the majority of them during that period were happy to do so. Yeah, uh, very good. Skipping ahead to your Melbourne footy club job, what was the transition like going back into coaching? Because you had some time off. I remember um, obviously I was with, at the academy with you and then you yep. um, yeah, took that role down here in Melbourne. What was the transition like going back into coaching? Was it, did a lot change in the time or, or did you um, just still take those similar philosophies across to Yeah, to a couple the of things. I, I could never have done the job had I not coached Sydney. And I yeah. could see once getting there why Peter Jackson kept on ringing and trying to get a, you know experienced coach because yeah. it was just an enormous task to, to do for a young coach. It was not – it was just impossible to do. Yeah. And I realised that pretty quickly. And, and to Peter's credit, what I loved, he was really honest. He, he didn't sugarcoat anything. Um, so I, my preparation going into it, speaking to Peter, 
Speaking to Glenn Bartlett, Dave Misson was there who was with me at Sydney, had a chat to Dave Misson, spoke to the leadership group. Yep. So I was really well prepared going in, understanding how difficult it was, but understanding the things that I'd done at Sydney and then translating them to um, Melbourne. So basically the same model but just a different starting point by yep. a country mile. Probably the biggest thing I noticed during the three years I was out is, is the lack of access to the players, how much the PA had got involved and – when you're coaching a bottom team, you need access to your players. Yeah. And I remember doing the schedule at one stage with Josh Marnie and Miso and and we talked about the starting date and I said, well, let's, you know, we'll get in there and, you know, let's whack um, weights on a Tuesday Arvo. And they said, no, 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 we can't train Tuesday Arvo. I said, no, no, we'll give them the weekend off. So they we're not going to train Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. Said, yeah, Ruzi, we need to give them two half days off a week. And I'm like, hang on, this is pre-season. So they yeah. Saturday, Sunday, you know, we have to give them two half days off a week. I said, okay, so we had to jam the schedule in um, pre-Christmas and then I said, well, look, once we get back, we'll be able to catch up a bit, you know, post-Christmas. Then all of a sudden, righto, Ruzi, no, we can't do that. We've got to give them a four-day break. I said, hang on, they've just come back from Christmas and we've got to give them, what, two four-day breaks after Christmas? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I said, okay, no problem. So then we get to the in-season program. I said, look, we really need to be clear on when we're giving them a day and a half off a week. I said, hang on, what do you mean we give them a day and a half off a week? So that including, you know, if you play Saturday, the Sunday's the day off. No, 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 Sunday's not a day off. So that was the biggest change. Yeah. You know, if you're coaching a young team, it's really hard. You really need access to them. You, you're really hard yeah. to catch up. Yeah. You know, it's never been a better time to coach an experienced footy team yeah. because they manage themselves and it's never been a worse time to coach the Gold Coast Suns because you just don't have access to no, the players. No. But the same process we put in place it was just we started just from miles and miles behind where yeah. I started at Sydney. So do you see like with, where where is the AFL heading now? Like do you do you have concerns around the quality of football if now? Footy departments are stripped back, and again, this obviously with the PA, the the players have less access as well. Do you see that as a concern moving forward for the AFL? Or um, well, I think it's a concern for the coaches. Yeah, you know, I think it, I think there's some big concerns for from a club point of view. You know, where are we at? What are we asking players to do? What are we asking coaches to do? How many coaches there'll be? How many players there'll be? Because, and what I've tried to explain to people outside of footy, the evolution of the coaching staff was because we had access to the players. So, you know, clubs like Collingwood, and, and I was supportive of this, um, you know, if you've got a minimum standard, but Collingwood will put another two coaches on because they want to have more one-on-one sessions and yep. more, that's smart yeah. because we're only there to win premierships. But all of a sudden you've got this, Limited player access and this whole huge coaching group. Yeah. So you've got a lot of coaches with not much to do. So that's going to be the interesting part of where it all ends up, yeah. you know. And I think it's doable. You know, I think what you'll see is coaching groups going back to when I started. That was like when you were coaching. Yeah. Um, you know, what will the player access look like? Um, how, many, how many players will be on a list? Yeah. Will the development arm go back to the Sandy Dragons? Will they be responsible? Will the academies be responsible for, you know, will the draft days go up? Yeah. So there's plenty of unknowns. Yeah. But even mathematically, you know, when I started, there was 12 teams. Mm. There's now six more teams with 22 more players on each team playing. So the depth of talent Talent's has just been diluted, spread out. Hasn't it? Yeah. What, you know, what, I think what struck me when I watched that State of Origin game is it's not the rules. It's the skill level of the players. Yeah. If you can't – That was hand, great to watch that game. It was fantastic. And you yeah. couldn't put pressure on because the players were so skillful. Yeah. Yeah, so the ball moved so quickly. Oh, that first half, it was moving up and down, wasn't but it? But if you hit targets, the ball's going to move. You kick the ball on the ground, a handball ball on the ground. So we've tried to change all these rules. 
But we need to get players, their skill level has never been, and I'm talking generally speaking, there's still some incredibly skillful players playing, but the masses just aren't anywhere near as skillful as what they used to be Mm. across the whole mass of players because you've just got more players and you've got less time for them. If you get the best, you know, what what was the best 50 players together, the game's a completely different game. It is. Yeah. But the reality is you've got 18 teams, so the game diffuses by the very nature of the numbers you have. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, Ruzi, um, you know, from social basketball to, to trips to Hawaii, um, cocktails at Jerks, which, I, which I've enjoyed with you. Um, mate, for the listeners out there, how, how important is it to find balance in your life is, is what I'm getting at. And, um, yeah, the importance of actually stepping away and not taking things too seriously. Yeah, I think one of the things I realised how lucky I was, you know, given, you know, I had an American wife, but we made a conscious decision to go overseas every year and to get out of that Australian bubble or Melbourne bubble or, you know, bad AFL football. And to understand it's incredibly important, it was always important to me, but people in Hawaii or Africa or Aspen, they don't know anything about AFL football. My point being, so get away from your business, get away from, you know, what you're doing, get, give some time to yourself you know, and then this notion of work-life balance, it's just life balance. It's yeah. not work-life balance. It's not like I used to come home from Sydney Swans or Melbourne and go, well, that was work, Paul. Now he's home, Paul. Yeah. You know, you're trying to get balance in your life. It's so important to understand, you know, what makes you the best person you can be so you can show up for your family the best you can be. You can show up at work the best you can be. You can show up for your community the best you possibly can be. If you can't look after yourself, you know, one of, the, one of the best quotes I've heard is your own health will determine the health of your business. Yeah. It's so smart. That's true, isn't it? It's yeah. so true. We as a human race are so bad at looking after ourselves. Yeah. A little light goes on in the car and it's the oil thing. What's the first thing you do? You take it to the mechanic. Yeah. Get it fixed. Yeah. You look at the, un, the ill health around the world at the moment mm. is, is just dramatic. Yeah. So our inability to look after ourselves is just extreme. And that's why we're going through what we're going through at yeah. the moment. And that comes back to what you said earlier is about, about that self-awareness and being able to actually recognise when the time is to, you know, I need a break here or I need to step away or, you know, it's okay to leave work early. I remember you used to say to your coaches, like, if you've got nothing to do, go home. You, know, you said it to Johnny Blakey, go home and spend it with your family, you know. Yeah. So one of the worst things I hear from you know, CEOs or business leaders, and this is different if you have to work and you've got a small company, but one of the things I can't stand is when I run into someone who says, oh, you know, I've been so busy, I haven't taken a holiday for three years. Why? You're not that important. Yeah. Who has an ego that big that thinks that they can't have a, a holiday for three or four years? Because yeah. you can't turn up for your family. You can't turn up for your work as the best version of you. No. But they say it like it's a badge of honour. To me, it's the biggest badge of weakness I, I hear in people. Yeah, you know, because what you're effectively telling people is, I'm too important to have a holiday. I'm more important than you. You take holidays, nah, mate. That, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. I'm just smarter than you yeah, exactly. because I believe that I have to be the best version of me for the people I'm trying to look after. Mm. That's why I take holidays. That's a really important message. Yeah, no, absolutely, Rosie. Just before we end up today, um, uh, one of the final questions is um, your three life lessons or pieces of advice you'd give to people wanting to follow their dreams. So just three key pieces of advice that you would pass on um, for those wanting to either follow their dreams or, or take that next step in their life, their career, or whatever that might, may be. Yeah, I think the first thing is find your passion. And, you know, there's so much data around passion or call it purpose. You know, why, what do I want to achieve in this lifetime? 
you know, really find that as quickly as you can. Now, you, you might find that by going, bouncing around three, four, five jobs because it's not necessarily easy to find. So do a, a lot of different things. Find, work your way through the, the thing. Yeah, I've had six jobs and the first three weren't great, but what I learned from that. Yep. So find your passion and find your purpose as quickly as you, as you can. What, how, what, what, what do you want written on your tombstone, you know, mm. as a person? As a person, wow. what do you want written on your tombstone? What do you want people to write about you? You know, mm. again, there's so much thing. There's this thing that I don't know whether I've shared this before, but I read this article about a lady who used to work in palliative care, and she just out of her, out of habit, she started asking people, um, you know, about their life and their greatest regrets. And these people were never getting out, so that their end of their life. And one of them was, um, I lived the life that other people wanted me to live. You know, I didn't, wow. live, I didn't live my passion. Yeah, I allowed myself to be happier. You know, I should have allowed myself to be happy. There was nothing about in the top five about money, mm. wealth, et cetera, et cetera. I should have spent more time with my family and friends. Yep. Right? So find your passion, what's your tombstone look like, yep. and live your doctrine. Yeah. You know, there's so many distractions out there. Live your, and it's never been so important. Find out information. We've become so compliant as a race of, of human beings. Read books. Look at videos. Make your own decisions. Yeah. We're, we're prepared to sit back and let people dictate so much to us at the moment. We're so lazy. We're so, you know, compliant. You know, make, make informed decisions. Mm. Be intelligent. You know, read. Look at things. You know, if my personal brand is important to me, don't let other people put something onto that. you. Yeah. You know, so there are probably yeah, hopefully some points that people can take out of that. Oh, that's outstanding, Rusey. Well, well, mate, I just want to acknowledge you and, and, and thank you for today. Being so grateful for your time. Um, what a phenomenal career you've had, um, your strong leadership, um, your love for your family and how you stick to your personal values, mate. I think it's a real, real credit to you. Um, you know, you've not only been a great mentor to me, but a, more importantly, a great mate for over 10 years, your wife, Tammy, the boys, Dylan and Tyler, get along quite well and enjoy my trips over to Hawaii with you. Um, mate, just quickly, where can people find you? I know you've got your performance by design. Um, you've got a couple of books. Um, here it is. Sport is life. Life is sport. Um, your Instagram, what's your Instagram? Uh, what is it? Paul Ruse, whatever. At Paul, Paul Ruse 1. Paul Ruse 1. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so performancebydesign.co. Tammy's got some great stuff on her website too around mindfulness as well, so tammybrews.com. We also run these business wellness retreats, which are amazing. Um, so Nurture Group, so nurture360.com.au, nurtureher.com as well. So get on them. Yeah, they've obviously been put on hold a little bit at the moment. We're just trying to navigate through some, yep. yeah, clearly some issues. Um, but there's multiple ways. Jump on LinkedIn as well. You'll find me there. Um, yeah, and for people that are, you know, struggling, I'm always happy to, to you know, help out. And so reach out to me as well. Uh, good on you, Rosie. And just one final question for today is what is your definition of success? Oh, it's a great question. I remember having this discussion with the board about footy because if you look at it in footy terms, and we used to talk about it all the time, is if you def define success as a premiership, there's only one successful team each year. And that's when I really started you know, defining success. And I think that comes back to your passion. You know, what is your passion? What are you trying to create? So it's hard for me to define someone else's success. But success, I think, if I look at it purely from a, from a swan's point of view, yeah, because that's obviously that's a big part of what I did, it's really being associated with that brand. I think what 
what the Swans have created is is people want to go and watch them play. People want to go and be associated with them. Yeah. Do uh, maybe I look at it a different way. When you walk into a room, are you sucking the energy out of the room? Are yeah. people going, here comes Paul Roos and Chris Goodloe? Be an energy go. giver. Yeah. Be an energy giver. Yeah. That to me, if I had to define success, if you walk into a room and people go, geez, here comes Chris or here comes Roosie, can't wait to talk to them, yeah. that's success. Yeah. Oh, mate, that's awesome. Well, Roosie, thanks again, mate. Um, really, really appreciate it. Can I just get one uh, here it is from you? <laughs> here it is. <laughs> Well done. Thanks, Thanks Rosie. Really appreciate yeah. it, mate. Thanks. Well done. Wow, what an amazing chat with Rosie. So many great messages to take away. Learning how to define your purpose, building positive relationships and improving your leadership style and how it's important to be an energy giver. But what about this, gem? This was my favourite. What do you want written on your tombstone? So inspiring, guys. And just a reminder, guys, if you enjoyed this episode today, please share it with your friends, tag me on Instagram, and subscribe to Apple iTunes and Spotify accounts so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, you guys know what to do. Get out there, face those fears, and live those dreams. You'll be okay.